It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself, the world with its own needs. Something to your own head, beat it up, and I've seen got no seats. The ladder puts the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, the system of a gang, the government for hire in a combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, leave the jury, beat it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom. D O M spells doom. <laughs> and bloom. D L O O M spells bloom. Bloom. Was there an E at the end of that? No, I don't think so. <laughs> no. Hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom Wait, and Bloom Survival there Medicine is a Hour. Dot net, though. A who now? A dot net. A dot net. Oh, there it is. <laughs> Very funny. As I was saying, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, an honorable hour of honesty in a dishonest world. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find close to 800 posts, videos, podcasts, all sorts of stuff on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm a man with a plan, and that is to put a... Medically prepared person in every family. For any disaster. Absolutely right. And you are? Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And the hostess with the absolute mostess, if I may say so myself. Thank you. Together, we are the watchers on the wall, and we watch it all for you to find that silver lining in the storm clouds on the horizon. Mm-hmm. Hey, friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident? With a horrific hamster, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but when modern medicines get up and go, has got up and went, you're on your own. So you better have some supplies, some training under your belt. And you had better expect to deal with some of those medical issues that you might encounter when the ambulance is just not heading in your direction. That's right. But never fear, we are here. We're here to help. <laughs> yes. That's what we're here for. <clears throat> hey, do you have a tip or two you're willing to send our way? Well, I'll bet you do. We learn as much from you as you learn from us. That's for darn sure. So connect with us. It's easy. Here's the lovely nurse Amy to tell you how. You can connect by you can connect with us by email 
at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our group Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. We have a couple of Facebook pages, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy Show and Doom and Bloom. And you can follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. Don't forget our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy. And our first and third Wednesday of every month at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, a video cast at AroundTheCabin.com. That is a lot. But that's not all. That is not all. That You're is right. not all, folks. <laughs> we also have a new show, if you're listening to this one. Right, new podcast. Uh-huh. On Genesis Communication Network. And yep. that is the address is gcnlive.com. That's right. And we step out on a limb on that one. We sometimes give you opinions other than just <laughs> medical information yes and so that is for us a little, a, bit, of, a little bit of politics a new project for us a, a sort of a current or a current event absolutely show, uh, with a prepper twist absolutely and you can get the rss feed on the right side of our website at doomandbloom.net just scroll down you'll find an rss feed for the it's called american survival radio by the way aha uh-huh. uh-huh. You'll find the RSS feed for American Survival Radio, and right underneath it, you will find the RSS feed for these shows, and it'll have the two latest shows, up, both of them. Awesome, and also I want to just say that we have just put up a Twitter account for the new show. It is called A Survival Radio, at A Survival Radio. And you have a new website. That's right. It's called AmericanSurvivalRadio.com, and we are just now, it's sort of still under construction, but there's still some stuff there. It's a baby. There's some stuff there for you to read. <laughs> All right. Well, well, that is a lot. And of course, we're not, not even, even mentioning, done. we're not even mentioning our book, The Survival Medicine Handbook, our three category Amazon bestseller. Of course, our other books, the Ebola Survival Handbook, the Zika Survival Handbook is going to be coming, or rather, the Zika Virus Handbook yes. is going to be coming out Soon. in the next few weeks, and other things which shall remain nameless for the time being. <laughs> in the meantime, you can definitely check out our articles and magazines like... Yes, American Survival Guide, Survival Quarterly... Backwoods Home Magazine, Prepare, Survivalist, Survivor's Edge, Prepper and Shooter, and guess what? I will be featured in in an article in Ballistics Magazine. Wow. Yes. That is awesome. And when I say featured, I don't mean I'm the only one, but I'm part of some of the interviewees that will be in an article on... So you receive a mention. Yes. No, I don't receive a mention. I get to answer questions. Oh, okay. Yes. They told me to write 300 words, and I actually wrote 704. Uh, uh, but they didn't want to edit it, so I guess they liked it. Oh, well, I'm glad you to know, hear that. I bet those magazines don't get a lot of um, articles or um, points of view from women. Mm-hmm. So that's why I answered it. Yeah, I think that was a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I saw the one that they had last year on survival, and it was all men. Every single answer. Oh, men. Yuck. All men. Yuck. So, terrible. You know, a female point of view occasionally is a good thing. It is one indeed. of these prepper magazines. It is indeed an excellent thing, <laughs> and I'm glad I'm glad that you did it. Yes, thank you. Hey, where are we going to be in the next few weeks? Oh, my goodness gracious. we got a busy, busy schedule starting uh, April 29th. We're going to be at the Heritage Life Skills. That is their fifth one, so it's Heritage Life Skills 5, uh, sponsored by... 
Um, Carolina Readiness. Carolina Readiness, right? Jan Sterrett. Lots of great people. We will be doing a sutra class on Saturday the 30th in the morning, and then I'm going to have a brand new class, Bleeding Control, on Sunday at 1 p.m. And that's going to be May 1st. The weekend after that, we're going to be in Richmond, Virginia at the NPS Expo. Uh-huh. And we'll be teaching a sutra class Sunday morning that weekend. And the following weekend, on Friday the 13th, mm-hmm. we'll be Scary. at the Self-Reliance Expo in Dallas, Texas. Oh, we love Texas. Don't mess with Texas. And our sutra class will be on that Friday at 3 p.m. Wow. And well, that's that a is two, a lot That's of a two-day show. That's only a Friday-Saturday show. They don't do Sundays for the All Self-Reliance right. Expo. So. Oh, that's going to be a busy three weekends in a row. Too much. Holy And two mackerel. radio shows. And two radio shows. How are we going to do this? I haven't the slightest, <laughs> but we've always done it, so we'll we'll do it. We need some help. <laughs> Volunteers, right. anyone? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Hey, in the news, a new endangered species. And guess what? I'm one of them. Doctors. Oh, Holy yes. Holy mackerel. The doctor is disappearing in America, at least the MD. And by most accounts... It's only going to get worse, especially with primary care physicians, according to a report from the Association of American Medical Colleges. The U.S. could lose as many as one million doctors by 2025. That's actually not so far from now. I believe it. As a matter of fact, primary care doctors are going to account for at least a third of that shortage, meaning that the person most likely to be your family doctor is going to be much more difficult to see. Why? Because it's hard to see something that's disappeared, right? Wow. Doctors are retiring faster than they're being replaced. Well, this is a big problem because when you get into the medical system, there are a lot of insurance policies that require that you see the primary care or the family physician first before you get a referral to see the specialist. So, you know, that's kind of the the open door. It's the front door. And if you can't get into the front door, you can't get into the specialist. So that is a serious issue, especially for people who have uh, new or chronic medical conditions. Yeah, it is a big issue serious. because the primary care doctor is a gatekeeper, is sort of it opens the gate for you to see all these other specialists, and without that person there, you've got you've got trouble. Matter of fact, there are so many areas in the United States that there's at least one area, one region, which 65 million people live in a, what they call a primary care desert, and that means that the medical systems in those areas are basically just putting out fires, dealing with only the patients that are really, really sick, Everybody else winds up having to wait an awful long time and winding up getting very little time with their physicians. And so an additional problem is not only that people who are sick are waiting, but people who just want to get preventative care are not getting their mammograms ordered. They're not getting their colonoscopies, any blood work, uh, routine um, H&H, if you want to check your blood counts, if you want to check your cholesterol levels, these things are not going to be done if you can't even get in to see your doctor. You got that right. The primary care gap is particularly acute in about one-third of states, which only have half, 50% or less of their primary care needs being met. Half, actually, is pretty generous. A lot of states are much worse. Connecticut, for example, has only about 50% of its its primary care needs met. Missouri is at about 30, Rhode Island 33, Alaska 35, 
North Dakota 37, and everybody else is at some kind of deficit. Now, the doctors that do exist aren't in the right place or in the right specialties, one researcher said. Doctors tend to cluster in big cities. Right. They're far more scarce in rural areas or other small communities and actually in some inner city areas as well. Mm -hmm. So how did this shortage come about and how has the problem gotten so crazy? Here are some clues. Number one, guess what? Money. Absolutely. Choosing to go into primary care is also choosing to get paid less. Starting salaries in high-paying specialties can range from $350,000 for a general surgeon, $488,000 for an ortho guy, while primary care fields tend to bring in less than $200,000 a year. And pediatrics, family medicine, those are some that are included. So if your son or daughter goes into medicine, what specialty would you tell them to go into, everything else being equal? Plastic surgery. Plastic surgery, lots of money in that, but are I you... I can't imagine what their average salary is, because they're cash. Yep. Generally, I mean, I, I'd say 95% Well, there is you go. cash pay for them. Right, no HMOs for them. So the, the truth no. of the matter is, is that, you know, if your kid is going to go into medicine, you're going to want them to make as much money as possible so that they can have a comfortable life. And be happy. And be as happy. As long as they're happy doing it. That's right. So simply put compensation for primary care providers oftentimes are just not up to date with what they are for specialists. Uh, a yearly checkup, you just don't get as much money for that as you do for a cardiac bypass, let's face it. And the end result is that it takes a lot longer to pay back those medical school loans, which can be incredibly high. Which is exactly what my next point was going to be. These doctors all go to school for about the same amount of time. Now, I will say that there is a specialty. So you had to go to school uh, more, many more years than a family physician. How many additional years did you have to go to school? If you just wanted to be a family practitioner. If you want to be a general practitioner, which is different than a family practitioner, okay. a GP is you basically get, you, you graduate from medical school and you put out a shingle. That is very rare nowadays. Now people are going into family practice, right. which is a three-year residency. Okay, so they okay. went, okay, just remember, guys, they did four years of a bachelor's degree, now four years of medical school, and now three additional specialty years. Other specialty years, uh, other specialties take four to seven years to After complete. After medical school. After medical school to complete. So they do take a longer period of time. I mean, people could be 35 years old. Oh, yeah. By easily. the time they finish easily. school. Easily. And not only that, but they could have hundreds of thousands of dollars in school loans. Hundreds oh, yeah. of thousands. You guys, you need, you need to think about that. Hundreds of thousands of dollars in school loans. And you're not even beginning to get into the workforce until you're 30 to 35 years old. And, you know, imagine the dedication to study and work that hard to do that, and then you get out and you can't even pay a mortgage. You can't even buy a car. You're so burdened with these student loans. And and you have these student loans because you want to help people. Right. And let's, let's understand, folks, that we need doctors. As much as some people poo-poo doctors, well, if they break their leg, you know, the medicine that we can grow in our backyard is not going to help you. Okay, you have to go get it fixed, especially if it's really bad and it's shattered and you need all kinds of metal put in there. Okay, you need a surgeon, you need an anesthesiologist, and you need a hospital. 
Okay, so we have to have doctors. In normal times, that's the way it is. Now, I mentioned this yeah. because I want people to know that doctors aren't going to be that available and that they may start thinking about learning more about medicine and having a medicinal garden and becoming more self-reliant from a medical standpoint. As much as we can, right. But I want people to understand why this is why this is happening, why people don't want to really become doctors, why students aren't really that attracted to becoming a doctor anymore. My, my daughter did pre-med. She got straight A's for two and a half years and called me up one day and told us... Yeah. To, to our our sad ears that she did not want to become no, a doctor. No. Right. Didn't want to do it anymore. That's true. And it, a lot of it relates to quality of care things. You know, doctors uh, and primary care doctors especially work longer hours. They have to be well-versed in a wide variety of medical issues. They have to be able to refer people to the right specialists. And there's also another disincentive. If someone comes to a primary doctor with a problem that needs a procedure, for example, mm -hmm. the primary care doctor performs it, knows how to do it, let's say removing a hemorrhoid, there can be some major issues. If the patient doesn't heal well, the primary care doctor winds up getting asked, isn't there a specialist that could have done this procedure? Oh, gosh. Then yes. why didn't you send the patient to the specialist? Guess what that is in today's world? Medical Mal malpractice. Practice. And who wants to be involved in stuff like that? Nobody. This is all pretty sad because the most important doctor a patient has is the primary care doctor. The primary care doctor is the knowledge to recognize issues in every organ system, not just the joints like an ortho guy or the liver like a hepatologist. Exactly. I mean, they have to know a little or a lot, really, about everything. Everything. And things aren't going to get better, not just because of less doctors, but for another reason. People are living longer and thus need more medical care. One report calculates that there's an 11 to 70 percent growth in total demand yearly for medical visits, much of it from an older population. So that's 11 to 17 percent growth. Wow. That's, that's a, a lot. lot. That is a lot. That's right. Now, this shortage is one that's been brewing for decades, and it hasn't been helped by the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. That increased the number of insured people. That, I guess, is a good thing. But along with that came an increased, greatly increased demand for doctor access. As a result, understaffed clinics are devoting less time to each visit. The wait for an appointment has been lengthened. I don't know about whether there's limits on when you can get a procedure done or how you get a procedure done. You know, I'm gonna leave that debate where it is and let's just talk about this issue. Right. Now, what about medical schools that produce new doctors? Few medical schools consider a community service background or an expressed interest in primary care when admitting applicants, although these factors would be easy to screen for. Uh, let's say past service in the Peace Corps would be a really good predictor for right. a student taking an interest in primary care, right? Volunteering at yes. um, a elder care center right. or an after-school program. You right. know, something this, voluntary helping the community or a right. YMCA. This makes you think that people may be interested in primary care, these prospective medical students. Mm -hmm. Then there's, of course, the structure of the programs themselves. The reason why a lot of people going, a lot of students go into specialties is because a lot of the faculty members are specialists and they want to emulate them if they like them, that is. Right. I mean, and specialists, why are there more specialists on faculty? Because they do more research, they make more money for the medical school. This certainly influences their students' choices and the use of university hospitals as teaching sites just doesn't immerse students as much in the outside community. 
No community roots, no community doctors, right? Now, osteopathic schools, which have the same educational requirements as an MD degree, but focus a little bit more on holistic medicine and a hands-on approach, they tend to have a little more luck sending students into primary care. With osteopaths, I think the quality of their training once they graduate, that's the most important thing. I'm an MD, but I believe that if trained in an inner city hospital like I was, there's not a great deal of difference in the quality of care from a DO as opposed to an MD. In an inner city hospital environment, you see a real diverse array of medical problems, and that's much more useful than doing an internship in a suburban doctor's office, which some of the smaller DO programs might do. New osteopathic medical schools, such as Arkansas State's latest campus, are being founded to alleviate the physician's shortage. Matter of fact, it's going to enroll a class of 115 students in August. But more openings will mean it's easier to get into medical school. Is that good? Probably there'll be more doctors, but it could mean that a lower level of quality might exist in the newer classes. Now, I don't think this is necessarily so, honestly. There are a lot of people who may not do well in calculus or other medical school prerequisites, like physics. I had to take a year <laughs> of physics, but are still good people with a genuine knack for caring for the sick. Maybe we need aptitude tests for empathy in addition to those for math and science. Of course, take a look at geography. That, I think, is another reason. It doesn't take more than a quick scan of a map of medical schools in the U.S., to see that most of them are in the northeastern U.S. And, of course, graduates tend to stay in the areas where they went to school. That is actually something that it has been proven statistically. So this contributes to a real skew among doctors. Lots of doctors in New York City, in other words. It's sort of strange that there's a shortage in Connecticut. I don't get that one, uh, mm. actually. But believe me, in Not New York City, <laughs> you need a doctor, you'll find a doctor. Now, one last thing that's good for your care but decreases the availability of it to the general public, mm -hmm. doctors want to practice differently today than their predecessors did. They place a higher premium on regular nine to five hours. In other words, today's young doctors want to have a life. Wow. A when, life? When did, Wait, what was that? When do they get to have that? I don't know. I mean, I wish I did. I, I, mean, it, I didn't have much of a life either. Well, as a nurse practitioner. That's true. You it know, was, I was very difficult for you, too. Hours just like you were. Absolutely. And so it takes more than one new doctor coming out to replace an old-style baby boomer doctor like me because I can tell you that I did the work back then that two doctors do today. I put in 36-hour shifts. I was on call all the time. Sometimes all I would be up several nights in a row at 4 in the morning. I don't think people... And then are... seeing patients in the office... Yeah. Crazy, crazy stuff. I don't think people understand the hours that are really required. At least, they again, they used to be. Well, I mean, we'd be on for five to seven days. We'd get up in the morning. If we had sleep the night before, go to the office. Well, first we had to go to the hospital, make rounds. Then we went to the office, worked all day, usually didn't have lunch. And by all day, I mean from... 9 a.m. till 6.30, 7 o'clock. Then we have to go back to the hospital. We probably went to the hospital at lunchtime, too. Right. Now, if there was somebody in labor, we'd be going back and forth. And thankfully, the office was right next to the labor and delivery. So we'd just run, 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 run back and forth of the surgical suite. And then afterwards, we'd have to tend to the patients who were in labor until they delivered. 
So in other words, not a lot of sleep. <laughs> not a lot of sleep. Not a lot of family life. <laughs> built into the into a medical career back then. Not a lot of relaxation going on there. Luckily for today's doctors, things are a lot saner now. Unfortunately, it takes seven years to train a primary care certified doctor, board certified primary care doctor. Mm-hmm. So the lag time is going to be significant before we see any change in the great American doctor shortage. Yep, you're right, baby. Now, I will say one thing, that there is indeed a program to bring more doctors into this country. Foreign doctors through the MAVNI program. Let me see what MAVNI stands for. MAVNI stands for Military Accessions Vital to the National Interest. Aha! MAVNI. MAVNI offers eligible physicians an expedited pathway to U.S. citizenship in exchange for service in the U.S. Army. Physicians can choose to serve full-time on active duty or part-time in the Army Reserve. They bypass the lengthy green card process and become a U.S. citizen in about three months. Wow, straight out. So you graduate from medical school in Syria, come over here in three months, you can become a U.S. citizen. Isn't that awesome? And the reason why is because... If you think people don't want to be primary care doctors, they really don't want to be primary care doctors for our nation's servicemen and women and their families. Why is that? I have no idea. I guess it's money again, but the truth of the matter is is that you have a very nice life as an Army doctor. You start off as a captain. You wind up having all sorts of perks. It's a really awesome, nice life for people, and it's a shame that our government has had to stoop so low in order to beg for doctors to treat our men and women in the armed forces. So my question is, how are they vetting these people? Well, hopefully with a very long questionnaire and an interview and a background check. Yeah, how about if (laughs) I get somebody Mm -hmm. that makes fake driver's licenses to make a fake medical school diploma and come on over, present that, and say... Hi, where are my captain's bars? Well, not only that, but aren't some of those schools taken over in certain areas? Don't they have universities that are taken over by ISIS right now, and they're actually using, like, their chemistry labs? Oh, yes. Yeah, I've read that. So if that's true, then there are no records because those files are in that school that is not open anymore. You can't get access to anyone's school records to prove that they went to school and graduated. Exactly. So if I went to medical school in Iraq, for example, and I have my medical diploma in my hand, let's say I actually did go to medical school in Iraq, but what happens is that there's absolutely no record of my ever going, going to school, will they take that diploma and allow me to treat American servicemen? What if the school doesn't even exist anymore? I mean, the school might physically be there and the files are unaccessible or the school's just gone, wiped off the face of the earth. How do you prove this? I don't know. Well, the State Department's got a lot of work to do. I'll say, well, I hope that people out there, if you're a young person and you're thinking about going to medicine, think about spending some time in the Army taking care of our servicemen. Absolutely. They deserve the best and I know that you will do the right thing. You're listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, 
or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family medical bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did. Okay, and we are back. You're listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. You know that we are members of the Expert Council for Jack Spirico's very popular survival blog. And every so often we get an interesting letter and question from one of his listeners. And we think that it might have a little benefit for some of our listeners on this show. So we're going to go ahead and talk a little bit about arthritis-related issues in this question from one of Jack's listeners. Here it is. Hey, this is Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find close to 800 articles on medical preparedness for any disaster, and the co-author of the Survival Medicine Handbook. This week's question comes from Alan in Texas, who wants to know about joint pain, arthritis, and gout. There's a lot of manual labor involved in making a homestead out of my eight acres. My right shoulder, and especially my elbows, have arthritis and sometimes makes hard work very painful. I'm 59 years old, but still in good health, save for the occasional gout flare-up. Alan, our bodies are a miracle of engineering. They really are. But like any machine, we have moving parts that wear out with use. At your age, you could certainly have muscle pain, but your shoulders and elbows might also have arthritis, osteoarthritis, a deterioration of joints that comes with age, that can also occur as a result of injuries. Homesteading is a lot of work, and you probably can't rest your aching joints very long without getting things out of hand at your retreat. That's a shame, because rest is probably what they need. Of course, while modern technology is available, you should have my suspicion of osteoarthritis confirmed by x-ray at your local hospital. Since you have gout, there's always a possibility that it's a factor, although gout usually affects the feet. Now, for those who don't know, gout is a condition that inflames joints and even destroys them by depositing uric acid crystals in them. Once you've confirmed that it's osteoarthritis, you might consider taking anti-inflammatory medications like ibuprofen on a regular basis to cool the joint down. Doctors can also inject steroids directly in joints to give relief. Now, if you're looking for natural relief, though, a capsaicin cream or an arnica salve can certainly help although you'll need to apply them pretty regularly. Use moist, warm compresses to help with stiffness, especially in the morning. Now, various glucosamine supplements, our popular glucosamine sulfate preparations, have more evidence for their effectiveness than glucosamine hydrochloride. Take about 1,500 milligrams once a day on a regular basis, paired with chondroitin sulfate. Chondroitin sulfate, 800 to 1,200 milligrams a day. This combo has been shown to possibly slow progression of some arthritis conditions. Now, to control your gout, lifestyle, and dietary changes may be helpful. Avoid alcohol. Reduce how many uric acid-elevating foods you eat. Now, these include liver, red meat, herring, sardines, anchovies, kidney, beans, peas, mushrooms, asparagus, and cauliflower. And for goodness sake, avoid fatty foods. There's a lot more to all this than that. But it's a good start to get you feeling better. 
This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Okay, that was Jack Spierko's Survival Podcast Question of the Week. And we appreciate his show. It's an excellent show. I want you to check it out at Survival Podcast or thesurvivalpodcast.com. Now, I want to talk a little bit about something that's very yucky, and that is boils. Boils. Yuck, yuck, yuck. A boil is an abscess that involves the skin and is also called, well, it has actually a number of different names. It can be called a furuncle. It can be called a folliculitis. It can be called, in other words, an infection of a hair follicle. And it is sometimes called, in slang, a rising I got me a rising. So, (laughs) right? That, you've heard that before. Okay. Now, although boils refer to skin and subcutaneous tissue, the truth is you can get an abscess or a collection of pus just about in any organ. I've seen abscesses in abdominal organs. I've seen it in the ovary. I've seen it in the liver. All sorts of places. I've seen it in gums with tooth abscesses. Now, whenever you find them or wherever you find them, they're essentially a walled-off pocket of pus. Pus is a debris left over from your body's attempt to eliminate an infection. It's what's left over from that battle. It consists of white cells, red, white blood cells, red blood cells, inflammatory fluid, and live and dead microorganisms. In boils, those microorganisms are usually related to the staph species, Staphylococcus, oftentimes Staph aureus. Now, If the abscess was not caused by an infected wound or a diseased tooth, it's possible that it originated as a cyst and just got infected. Now, a cyst is a hollow structure that is filled with fluid. Fluid is usually clearish or yellowish. And there are various types of cysts that can become infected and form abscesses. uh, One that specifically causes boils would be a sebaceous cyst. Sebaceous cysts are caused by skin glands that are associated with hair follicles. They're usually seen on the face and on the trunk of the body, the torso. And these cysts cysts naturally produce an oily material known as sebum. Now, there are other cysts. Inclusion cysts are another type. And these occur when skin lining is trapped in deeper layers as a result of trauma or as a result of faulty suturing, for example, of a wound, things like that. And they continue to produce skin cells and grow, but they are under under the skin and they accumulate fluid. They become infected easily and develop pus. And then there is another one which you have to have a genetic tendency for, and these are called pilonidal cysts. And these cysts are located over the area of the tailbone and they're due to a malformation during fetal development. They easily become infected and oftentimes require intervention. Now, to deal with an abscess, you have to forge a root that evacuates the pus. And the easiest way to do this is to place warm, moist compresses over the area, which is also called ripening the abscess. Now, in this circumstance, you should apply the compress over the area for at least 15 minutes or so every couple hours during the day. This will help bring the infection to the surface of the skin, where it'll form a head, hopefully, and drain spontaneously. Now, the abscess normally goes from firm to soft as it ripens. It'll develop a whitehead pimple at the likely point of exit. Now, you'll be tempted to squeeze this pimple, squeeze the boil in an effort to relieve the pressure, and which can be 
pretty uncomfortable, but doing this may make the infection worse. Don't do it. Patience is important for a few days to give the abscess a chance to resolve on its own. If a few days go by without spontaneous drainage, it may become clear that a boil or abscess may not respond to lesser treatment and need some kind of intervention, surgical intervention. This is called lancing a boil and is otherwise referred to as incision and drainage, or IND, IND, in medicalese. Now, to start off with, you always have to wash your hands. You always have to put on gloves, preferably nitrile gloves that are non-latex, before attempting this or really any other medical procedure. Just make it a habit. Now, clean the area with an antiseptic. Apply a numbing agent. If you have lidocaine and know how to use it, great. If you have lidocaine and don't know how to use it, maybe not. Even ice will do as a numbing agent. Good the point, honey. The reason why I mention that is if you accidentally inject lidocaine into a vein or an artery, then what happens is you're going to cause some major issues. Lidocaine is actually a heart medicine, even though it causes anesthesia when injected into soft tissues. What happens is if injected into a blood vessel, given IV, so to speak, then it will cause arrhythmias, irregular heartbeats. It can cause seizures. It can cause all sorts of things and actually could kill you. So that's a very important thing to know. All right, back to this. You want to clean the area with an antiseptic. Let's say you have ice and, and that's it. Ice will do as a numbing agent for now. Apply some more antiseptic. You never have too much. Betadine is good. Hibiclens is good. That's also known as chlorhexidine. So that's good. Use a sharp sterile instrument such as a scalpel. A number 11 blade is best. There are a number of different types of blades. I like a number 11 blade for opening up a boil. Now, if you don't have a sterile instrument, Put a thin blade over a fire until it becomes red hot, then let it cool. Now, using the tip of the scalpel or instrument, pierce the skin over the abscess perpendicular to the surface of the skin. The pus should drain freely as soon as you get deep enough to break the wall of the abscess and or the boil, and your patient will experience almost immediate relief from the release of pressure. Sometimes you need a, a small Kelly clamp to open up that abscess incision a little bit and break up possibly small little compartments in the abscess called loculations. If the abscess is an apartment house, then the loculations are the individual apartments and the rooms inside those apartments. And so if those exist, which they do in a number of cases, especially the bigger abscesses, you need to break them apart by just putting in a Kelly clamp and spreading it in, while it's inside, and that'll break that up. And what happens is, is that pus that's stuck in those little compartments will be able to drain. Now, all this is an extraordinarily big mess. So have some extra gauze handy. That is absolutely important, especially with a large boil. Now, you, it, by, by the way, very old boils may actually come out with sort of cottage cheesy material as opposed to liquid pus. So each person is going to be different and each case is different so don't be surprised if you see that now once you're done you want to irrigate that wound in the inside of that boil with lots of saline solution or clear clean or clean water you want to put a thin gauze moistened with some betadine for example into the abscess cavity uh, that's also called 
Iodoform packing, if you buy it commercially, it is commercially made and called iodoform packing. And you can place that inside and wait for the abscess to heal from below. And that's a process called granulation. At one point or another, you need to change that packing. You should probably do it twice a day for a while. At one point or another, it'll close enough so it's just not going to be easy to put it, the packing back in. In that case, you could probably leave it alone as long as you leave it clean. You might consider applying an antibiotic ointment like Bactroban or some raw unprocessed honey to the skin surrounding the incision. That may help it. That may help prevent an infection from occurring. Always cover with a clean bandage and just change this twice daily until the abscess is resolved. If the abscess returns though, sometimes you actually have to cut out the walls and that's a much more extensive procedure which we'll talk about in future shows. Remember that oral antibiotics are a useful additional tool to treat boils. Oftentimes people may try to depend on antibiotic creams. They probably will not get rid of a boil, but oral antibiotics might. So if you choose to use them, either with or without lancing the boil, you would consider things like amoxicillin, that's fish mox, cephalexin, that's fish flex, or fishmycin, otherwise known as erythromycin. These are options that are available in veterinary equivalents that you can find on, online. Incision and drainage is also helpful for dental abscesses as well. Unfortunately, once you get to the point that you have a dental abscess, you probably have damaged the nerve of the overlying teeth, and you may not be able to save them. And so don't be surprised if extraction is necessary in this circumstance. We've talked about that on previous shows, and we'll be talking about that soon again. Now, this is a type of open wound, but it is not a usually large, wide open wound. It usually has a small opening. You do make it big enough so that you know that the pus is draining out, but not. it's usually not a big, giant incision. Mm -hmm. However, there are some wounds that might be big, giant incisions, or that might be injuries that are wide open to begin with, or they could be bed sores from people that are bedridden for a period of time, and the skin breaks down, causing a sore. Right. Now, in these circumstances, you need to have something that might be a little stronger than just regular saline solution or regular water that you would like to use to prevent infection. And one thing that you can use is a type of solution called Dakin's solution. Now that's used to kill germs and prevent germ growth and wounds and is actually a relatively simple thing. Homemade. Inexpensive and I think a perfect solution for survival settings, mm -hmm. for the survival medic. You got it. Now. To put together this solution, which you would use to clean out and flush out wounds, you would need some bleach, usually household bleach like Clorox, not uh, scented bleach or anything like that, just a regular unscented bleach. Don't use more concentrated bleach than normal, however, that I want you to use just a regular bleach. Some baking soda, sodium bicarbonate, clean pan with a lid, measuring cup and spoons, and a jar with a lid. And so to make this solution, this is very simple. You wash your hands with soap and water like you do with everything. 
beforehand. You might even consider wearing gloves. You want to gather all the supplies that I just mentioned, and you want to measure out about four cups of tap water, that's 32 ounces, and put that into the clean pan. You want to boil that for a few minutes, maybe 10 minutes, with the lid on the pan and remove that from the heat. And using a measuring spoon, add about a half a teaspoon of baking soda to the boiled water. Then you have to decide what strength of Dakin solution that you want to use. Full strength Dakin solution would add three ounces of Clorox to 32 ounces of water. That might be a little on the strong side, however, and I would recommend maybe half strength or quarter strength. The half strength would be about three tablespoons and a half or about 48 milliliters of bleach solution to your 32 ounces of water. Quarter strength would be one, one tablespoon and two teaspoons or 24 milliliters into 32 ounces. So I think that that would be a pretty good solution for most bed sores. Absolutely. For example, or open wounds that you really need keep clean, keep that bacterial count down on. Sure. Now, I just want to say a little something, in, and this is about nursing care. As far as if you have a bedridden patient, that, you know, nursing 101 is to flip a patient. And it's basically like flipping a pancake. If it's, you know, been sitting on one side for too long, you need to flip it. So you need to keep the patient on their right side for two hours. You can let them lay on their back for two hours. Then you move them over to their left side for two hours. There's even a position where they're almost on their stomach, but they're supported with pillows. So all of these position changes every couple of hours, obviously at night when the patient's sleeping for a longer period of time, you're not going to be flipping them around. But during the waking hours and during the day, it's really important to prevent bed sores. And that will help prevent the pooling of the blood in that uh, tissue that has been sitting and it's called pressure sores for a reason because if you're laying on your back and laying on your buttocks for a long period of time um, without moving, you can develop these ulcerations. And they can be really serious, especially in the older patient or the immunocompromised patient, the ones with diabetes. You know, you need to think about that. And, um, you know, you can do that in a survival situation, folks. That's not anything fancy. It's just basic nursing care. Okay, now for something entirely different. We'll talk about, what do you want to talk Instead about? Instead of being a pain in the tuchus, we'll have a pain in the head. Okay, <laughs> headaches it is. Absolutely. Well, there are one of the most common uh, medical symptoms that you're going to see in your role as medic. Uh, the brain matter itself doesn't have pain receptors, so that's interesting for folks. A lot of people don't realize that it, your brain is not actually hurting. But there's things around the brain that do, muscles, blood vessels, um, especially your sinuses. A lot of people have issues with sinus uh, troubles, sinus pain, sinus pressure. Uh, there's all kinds of issues with um, hay fever and colds and many, many things can cause sinus pain. Nerves associated with blood vessels and muscles are activated and they send pain signals to the brain. Headaches can occur suddenly and maybe related to, again, sinus, which would be colds, infections, flus. But they also might herald a life-threatening event like a stroke. So you need to pay attention to headaches and how they are onset and how you're feeling. And we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. So don't ignore a headache just because you've had headaches before. This one may be different. Always pay attention to them. Ear and sinus infections are particularly likely to cause headaches. 
Many consider headaches to be, well, more of a headache than actual danger, but headaches can be associated with a large number of medical conditions, not to mention traumatic injuries. Aha, like concussions. There are almost more causes for headaches than you can reasonably write down. In a collapse, however, common causes will probably be dehydration, stress, infections, fevers can cause headaches, of course, elevated blood pressure, um, caffeine and alcohol withdrawal. If we have a, a true survival situation and these things are not part of your storage and somebody has a coffee addiction, they have five or six cups a day, or maybe they're drinking a lot of soda, or maybe they do drink a lot of alcohol. Without those substances, they may actually start having you know pretty significant headaches. Um, and then fumes, things that we're not used to or, or things that, you know, set you off, like say even fires. So what kind of headache types are there? There are tension headaches. By far the most frequently seen type of headache is a tension headache. This is caused by spasms of the muscles of the neck and head. Tension headaches usually are seen bilaterally, which means you're gonna, you're gonna feel on both sides. It's not just gonna be on the right or just on the left. Or you can also feel it in the back of the head and the neck. They may be related to stress, anxiety, depression, a head injury, or even just time spent with a head or neck in an abnormal position. Lack of sleep, teeth grinding, and poor posture are also factors. Tension headaches may last a half an hour or they can last a week. A sensation of pressure or tightening is the most common symptom. This type of headache may be improved by massaging the back of the neck and the temples. That's important to know. It helps you distinguish between something serious and something that can be relieved with massaging. Ibuprofen and Tylenol are the old standbys as treatment, and identifying the situation that triggers this headache can help avoid future episodes. So try to think about what was going on just before you got that headache. It'll help you prevent it from happening again. Sinus headaches. Your sinuses are a group of several air-filled spaces in the skull that surround the nose. Sinus headache can be caused by infection, or be related to allergies. I think you guys heard me sneeze just a little while ago. <laughs> allergies are very common. Besides pain, additional signs include thick mucus congestions, which can be green or yellow in color or clear, a low-grade fever, and a cough. Pain may be localized over the particular sinus infected, such as the cheek or forehead, which means your discomfort may be one-sided. So when we talked about the tension headache, you could feel it on both sides. The sinus headache tends to be either on the right or the left side. So that helps you figure it out. Antibiotics may be useful and helpful to treat the infections that cause this type of headache. You could take amoxicillin, which is also called Fishmox Forte. It's a 500 milligram tablet. Take that three times a day for about a week and that would be a reasonable treatment, and it's your first choice. Now, if you're allergic to penicillin uh, family drugs, consider bird sulfa. It's also called Bactrim, and um, take that just twice daily because that's a pretty big dose. You want to just take that in the morning and at night, about every 12 hours if you can. Nasal decongestants such as Sudafed may give some relief and also Using a neti pot or steam inhalation 
But make sure that using sterile saline if you're doing the nasal irrigation with a neti pot. Let's talk about migraines. Another common cause of headaches are migraines. The exact cause of migraines is uncertain. It is thought by some to be related to spasms in the blood vessels. Migraines may be genetic in nature, as they seem to run in families. Women are much more susceptible to migraine headaches than men. A specific pattern of symptoms is seen in this variety of headache. Pain behind the eye, usually one-sided. Sensitivity to light, noise, or odors. Nausea and vomiting. Causing loss of appetite or stomach discomfort. And vision changes. You can see blurring, lights, or weird color phenomena. Bed rest in the dark will be helpful here, as well as ibuprofen and or Tylenol. Some migraine medicines use caffeine and are thought to be effective. Tea and coffee might be alternatives in an austere setting if you have them. If you are a chronic migraine sufferer, ask your physician for Imitrax, a strong anti-migraine medication to stockpile. Well, we're running out of time, but there are indeed a number of other causes of headaches. We'll go over those, and also we'll go over some natural forms of pain relief for headaches. So different things that you can use that are outside the box that might be able to help those headaches. Hey, before we go, I want to ask you to please follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. Also follow our new shows, Twitter at, Sur at A Survival Radio. Also keep an eye out for new videos on our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. And feel free to join our survival medicine group called Survival Medicine Dr. Bones Nurse Amy on Facebook. Thanks so much. This has been the Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Please join us next week again. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become in these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse? You need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Joe Alton, MD of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family medical bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.